I'm actually going to invite you right from the very beginning to turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 9. We're going to look at verses 6 and 7. If you've been with us the past few weeks, we've been walking through uh, this passage of Scripture in the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah 9, uh, we wrap it up. We wrap up this portion of Scripture that really is a prophecy that Isaiah gives in the midst of what Israel would be experiencing and we could term as darkness. And we've walked through the context of where we find ourselves as we jump into this book of Isaiah and Israel being under captivity if, you, if they lived in the northern kingdom, which is referred to as Israel, the northern kingdom. Israel was divided into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom is under Assyrian uh, oppression, under the King Tilgath-Pileser and And obviously the majority of the Israelites have been exiled out of this land, and so it's extremely dark for the northern kingdom. Southern kingdom, really not any different, though they're yet, not though they haven't experienced outside oppression yet, they're being ruled by a godless king, a Jewish king named King Ahaz, and we looked at some of the things that even King Ahaz is promoting in idol worship. And so very, very dark times in the life of Israel. And how we look at a passage of scripture and we're going to look at today this hope, this this light of the coming Messiah that's going to come and is going to make all wrongs right. And as we jump into this passage today and really Advent, the season of Advent just reminds us of the anticipation and the waiting that those in Israel would have longed for, waiting for this promised Messiah to come. And as we live on this side of the cross, knowing that that Messiah is Jesus Christ and how it reminds us that regardless of how dark the times are that we may, be, we may be experiencing in our life, light always overcomes darkness. And so the title of this message this morning is simply this, Your Greatest Gift. And I was thinking about it as I was looking at this passage of Scripture and studying this passage of Scripture. I, I really asked myself some questions and I want to pose them to you. And so I actually want you to to participate in these questions. Here's the first question as we look at this idea of what our greatest gift is. Can you remember, I'm curious, I want you to raise your hand for this. Can you remember what you received for Christmas last year? You can raise your hand. Now now look around. Very few people are raising their hands. I actually asked myself, man, what did I get for Christmas last year? I could not tell you. I could not tell you. I'm sure I wanted it last year, but I can't even tell you what it was this year. And, uh, and that's probably, obviously, it's true for most of us, more so for the 11 a.m. than the 9 a.m. The 9 a.m. could remember more. Now, here's what's interesting. You can remember a lot better what you gave someone for Christmas than what you received for Christmas. That's an entirely different message. But, I mean, that's the reality, right? What we longed for, what we hoped we would get, and... If you were fortunate, you got that thing, now you can't even remember what it was. Here's another question that I actually want to ask you, and you can actually yell it out. So think about what was the best gift you ever received for Christmas? All right, yell it out. Yell out. You guys are already like, bam, on it. Yes, permission to yell out. All right, yell it out. So keep keep going. What is it? Yell it out. Shotgun. Holy, man, we are in North Carolina. See, the rest of you didn't say your thing with conviction, so that's all I heard. Anybody else? Anybody else want to 
What is it? Money. Money. Someone said Super Bowl tickets? Oh, Orange Bowl. I was about to say Super Bowl. Tell me your dad and mom because I want to be adopted. <laughs> Orange Bowl tickets. Well, that's, that's my old stomping grounds. But nevertheless, uh, it's your best Christmas. Obviously, you yelled it out with conviction, some of you. Mine, I was thinking to myself, what was my greatest gift? And probably some of you would resonate with this. My greatest gift that I can remember, or what I would say I can remember um, more than any other thing was, I remember my first BMX bike. How many of you remember your first bike that you got for Christmas? Raise your hand. Oh, see, now we're a lot lot different of a crowd. Yeah. For some reason, I don't know what it is, but most people remember their first, like, I'm not talking about like the little training wheels thing. I'm talking about, like, I remember it was this this BMX off-road bike, and I remember it was blue. I looked for this picture to put it on the screens, but I didn't have time to go through all the photo albums and find it, but it was this bright electric blue with yellow, bright yellow spokes. It sounds like a horribly ugly bike, doesn't it? But for me, man, it was, it was like, I remember walking out. I remember where I was. I remember what house we lived in. I don't remember really how old I was, but I remember that bike so vividly. Another day and another story. It got stolen four weeks later, but that's another story. But nevertheless, oh, don't, don't feel bad for me, please. It's, I got another bike, so don't feel bad for me. But I remember, I remember that. I remember, man, that, if I was to think back, what was one of the most amazing gifts that I got? Man, it was that bike. Now, here's what's interesting, and I'm not judging you, but here's what's interesting. Nobody yelled out Jesus. Oh. You're like, that's a given, right? Yes, yes, it's a given. Notice I didn't say that either. But what I want you to really think about, as we look at this passage of Scripture in Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, is I want you to think about what is truly the greatest gift. Because in Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, we're going to come across five names. Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And let's remind ourselves, let's put ourselves in this in this in this book and where Israel was at, and just imagine how dark it was for the people who actually loved the Lord and wanted to serve the Lord, those Israelites that were either under Assyrian oppression in the northern kingdom or being ruled by a godless king in the southern kingdom. And think about how dark it would have been for them. Think about how they often thought, man, I'm the minority. There's so few of us that want to love and serve the Lord and honor him and obey him. And how dark it must have been. And think about when they hear this, about this promised one, this Savior that's going to come, and how he's described, and thinking about how often in their history they look to other things or other people or other circumstances to be these names that are described in Isaiah 9. And as we think about what the Israelites must have felt like when they received this hope, this light in the midst of darkness, let's put it in our context today and let's think about the thing, the many things that we run to, whether they be people, whether they be places, whether they be things, and we think, man, this person, this thing, this place is wonderful. This thing is my great counselor. This person is my great counselor. This thing is mighty. This thing is what I look to as we walk through these names and let's remind ourselves that the things that we need most in life 
are provided for by this greatest gift. And so we're going to read Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. Hopefully you're there by now. And let's look at what this amazing promise is. It says in verse 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Remember we love this phrase. We pointed it out every week. The zeal of the Lord will do this. That true deliverance is always found outside of ourselves. And you see in verse 6 that we know that this person is Jesus, but then in verse 7 it speaks of future. When Jesus Christ is going to come back and he's going to right all wrongs and he's going to rule and reign for all of eternity and there will be no more sin and there will be no more rebellion. But here's what I want you to get this morning. It's this reality that Christmas, this season, that we are reminded of during this time, it reminds me of what? It reminds me that Jesus is the greatest gift for the greatest needs in my life. We, we touched on this last week, but it's so clear as we look at this passage of Scripture that Christmas reminds me that Jesus is the greatest gift for the greatest needs in my life. And so here's what I want to do this morning. I got this gift up here, and so you don't think too much of me. No, I did not wrap it. I don't rap, W-R-A-P, I don't rap, I don't R-A-P either, but as we open up this gift that symbolizes the greatest gift that was given in Jesus for the greatest needs in my life, and as you sit with your Bibles open, what I want you to do is I open up this box and I unpack what this greatest gift provides us and how it meets our greatest needs. Listen to me, I just want to make mention that every day that you wake up, you have the opportunity by opening up God's word and reading it for yourself to every day open up a present that reminds you of this reality. That Christmas is a lifetime. It's not just a day. And so what I want us to do is, is I'm going to open up this present and I'm going to open up this box and I'm going to pull out of this box what the Word of God says is the greatest gift and how it meets the greatest needs in our lives. But before I do that, I want to just focus on why we call it a gift. Because look at what it says in verse 6 again, because I don't want to pass, I don't want to rush over this. Notice what, is it sa- what it says in verse 6. For to us, who's us? You and me, the people of Israel, mankind, humanity, from past, present, and future. For to us, a child is born. Keyword here, circle it in your Bible if you have a pen. To us, a son is, circle this, given. There's such significance in that word. For to us, a son is given. It doesn't say to us, a son is deserved. It doesn't say to us, a son is earned. It says given. 
Because Christmas is about what? What do we do at Christmas? We give gifts to remind us of the greatest gift that was given for the greatest needs in our life. And I love how in verse six, there's that reminder of what salvation is. It is a gift. It cannot be earned. It cannot, it is not deserved. You don't deserve it, I don't deserve it. Romans 6, 23 says what? For the wages of sin is death. That's what I deserve because of my sin. That's what I deserve because of my decisions and lifestyle that I live that is anything but holy. You, me, we're all in that together. For the wages of sin, what I deserve is death, separation from God for all of eternity and a lake of fire. That's what I deserve. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And I love how in this promise, written hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before Paul ever wrote Romans 6.23, that God says through Isaiah, I'm going to provide a son, and he's going to be given to you. You can't deserve it. You can't earn it. It's given. Listen to me. We got... We've got junior hires in here, senior hires, adults, whatever it is. Those things that are under the tree that you will exchange with one another in a couple of days. The reason why they're called a gift is because you don't say before you exchange those gifts, all right, everybody, we're going to go outside right now and we're going to rake the rest of the leaves and we're going to put the trash at the end of the driveway and we're going to do some major spring cleaning. You know, the kitchen's all messed up because mom's been cooking all week long. And if you do those things, then you'll get your gifts. What's the problem with that? Because they're no longer gifts. Now they are wages for what you have done. And the prophet Isaiah does not say that this son has come and that I've earned it, you've earned it, I deserve it, you deserve it. No, no, no. It's given. It's a gift. And so what do we see in this gift? Why? Is Jesus the greatest gift for the greatest need in my life? And I love the first description, the first name that is mentioned. What is it? Wonderful. See, the reason why Jesus is the greatest gift for the greatest needs in your life and my life is because Jesus is wonderful. And because Jesus is wonderful, he provides joy in the ups and the downs of life. After all, that's the definition of joy, right? We spent 12 weeks walking through the book of Philippians that talks about what joy is. And if you call this place your home, you know what we've said. But if you're not here, I want you to hear this. Joy is not sourced in you. It's not sourced in circumstances. That's happiness. See, I can have something great happen, and I can get, I can get one of the gifts that I've wanted for Christmas this year, and I can be happy Why? Because a circumstance worked out in a favorable way for me. And I can be happy, and there's nothing wrong with being happy. But happiness is based on circumstances. Joy transcends circumstances because joy is sourced in the Lord. And so often I get those switched. So often I want to look for what is truly wonderful in people, places, or things. I can think if I could just get this job and just be promoted or just move from this job to the next job or move from this place to the next place, then I will experience wonderful. But what you find out is 
when you do that, that though in the moment it may make you happy, it is not the definition of wonderful. Why? Because you understand, guess what? I'm still dealing with fallen people in a fallen place and I've taken me with me. See, we're all looking for wonderful. Every one of us. And what I love is that the prophet Isaiah says, do you know what truly is wonderful? Do you know who truly is wonderful? Do you know where wonderful is truly found? It's found in Jesus. Jesus is the epitome of wonderful. I love what Jesus says in John 10.10. He says, I have come that, that they... Who's they? You and me. That they may have life. And then he says this, and have life more abundantly so that you can experience what is truly wonderful. And it's not found in circumstances. It's found in a person. And that person's name is Jesus Christ. You ever heard of this term, the post-Christmas blues? Ever hear that? You ever experienced it? You don't need to raise your hand, but... I've experienced, you know, we, we get ourselves so worked up that if I can just give my kids these presents that they want and see the joy on their faces, it's going to be the absolute best thing in the entire world, and I'll remember it for the rest of my days. Wait a minute, you can't even remember the gift you got last year. Well, if, I can't wait for all of my family to get together, and it's going to be amazing, and they're going to like everything that I cook, and they're going to, they're going to just, just hug each other all the time, and we're just going to laugh all the time, and we're never going to be upset with one another. We're never going to have those conversations that everybody wants to avoid because they know what will happen, and we could go on and on and on. And what oftentimes happens is we set ourselves up with these super high expectations, and when they don't happen exactly the way that we want, and now it's all over, and all that's left is the receipts and the bills and the credit cards that we have to pay, and the things we have to clean up and the people leaving upset from our house, whatever it may be. I hope that's not true for anybody here. <laughs> hope you don't experience that at all. But so often, the anticipation is greater than the experience. And we oftentimes feel let down. And I'm not saying that we don't enjoy those things, we don't celebrate those things, and, and that the Lord doesn't allow us to experience good things in our life to remind us that he is wonderful. And as wonderful as events happen in our life that we can celebrate, nothing trumps the reality that Jesus is the epitome and the definition of wonderful. Why? Because he provides joy that transcends circumstances in the ups, in the downs of life. Here's the second thing. What does it say? He's wonderful, but then it also says as I open up this gift and I'm reminded, man, why is Jesus the greatest gift for the greatest needs in my life? Because he's also counselor. See, and because Jesus is counselor, he provides wisdom for direction in my life. Like I know if I asked every one of you in this room, how many of you are looking for some wonderful? I'd raise my hand. If I asked you in this room, how many of you are looking for a counselor? If we're honest with ourselves, all of us would raise our hand. I'm so thankful for people that we can go to that can listen to things objectively and speak truth from God's word into our lives. Man, counselors are great. But what I love is there's one counselor who's defined as the counselor, capital C, and his name is Jesus. He provides 
the wisdom that I need for the decisions and direction in my life. And you're like, well, what are his qualifications? What makes him the great counselor? What makes him the best counselor? What makes him a better counselor than me? Or better counselor than your spouse? Or better counselor than the person that you meet with? What are his qualifications? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because here are his two major qualifications. Number one, get ready for this, because you've never met a counselor who can say this. Number one, he is God. Drop the mic. He's God. You meet with a counselor this week or next week to get over your post-Christmas blues and they start saying they're God, time to check out and stop writing the check because they need a counselor. Jesus is God in the flesh. And because he is God, that means he is omniscient. It's a characteristic of God that means he knows everything. And if you're doubting that Jesus is your greatest counselor, then I want you to write next to the margin of your Bible or above that word counselor, if you can write really small, depending on what size font your Bible is, and I want you to write Psalm 139. Because if there's one passage of Scripture that speaks to the qualifications of God, of Jesus more specifically, being your greatest counselor. Man, it's Psalm 139. Here's why. Because if Jesus is all-knowing, you know what that means? He knows you better than you know yourself. And I like to think I know me pretty well. But what Psalm 139 reminds me is that Jesus knows me intimately. Let me just read it. If you want to turn there, you can. And we could read the entire psalm because the entire psalm speaks to this, but I'm just going to read verses one through three. Oh Lord, you've searched me and known me. It's that idea of intimately knowing you. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar off. In other words, Lord, you know what I'm thinking even before I think it. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Listen to me. The reason why Jesus is the most qualified counselor in your life is because he's God. He knows you better than you know yourself. But here's what's also awesome. Is Jesus is not just God, but he's also man. And we'll never be able to fully reconcile that. That God, Jesus, put on human flesh so that he could not just be God for us, but he also could set us an example, so he also could know exactly what you're experiencing right now, or what you have experienced, or what you will experience, good or difficult. There's a doctrinal term speaking of God's humanity and God's deity. It's called the hypostatic union, that Jesus is 100% God and 100% man, and neither one of those natures conflict with one another. And here's the beauty of that. Because if Jesus is my greatest counselor, then he needs to be God in order to know me better than I know myself, in order to know all everything, that nothing takes him by surprise. But what makes him also the greatest counselor is he knows what it's like. He's walked in my shoes. He knows what it's like to be down 
He knows what it's like to be disappointed. He knows what it's like to go without. He knows what it's like to be betrayed. He knows what it's like to have someone say something that's contrary to what he knows he needs to do. He knows all of those things, whatever it is that you're going through, he knows them all. Why? Because he loved you enough not only to die on the cross for your sins, but he loved you enough to live a life that could be your example so that he could identify with what you are going through. And that's Hebrews 4. Verses 15 and 16, listen to this. The writer of Hebrews says this, for we do not have a high priest, in other words, an intercessor, who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Like, I don't have this Jesus who's a counselor, but say, man, I don't know what you're going through. No, no, I don't have that. I have someone who does, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. So what's my response? It says in verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus is my greatest counselor. What hope that gives me today when I open up this gift to remind myself that the reason why Jesus is the greatest gift for the greatest needs of my life is yes, I need wonderful. I need that in my life in the ups and downs of life. I need to be reminded that Jesus is the definition of wonderful, that regardless of what happens in my life, that he is the one that gives me joy. He is the one that shows me what wonderful is even when circumstances are not wonderful. He's my greatest counselor. He provides me wisdom in the decisions of life. Why? because he's God, but he also knows what it's like to be humanity. And aren't you so glad that our counselor doesn't keep that wisdom close to his vest? But in James 1.5, we're told that if we lack wisdom, that we can go to God and we can ask and we can know that we won't be judged, but he'll give it generously and without, here's the judge, without, without the judgment piece, without reproach. so awesome. I need to be reminded of that. That with Jesus and his mercy and his grace and his love towards me, there's not a question that I will ask Jesus that he'll say, that was a stupid question. That Jesus is never going to say, duh. You've read that five times before. Why are you asking me how to apply it again? Duh. No, no, no. He gives generously and without reproach. The worst thing that you want in a counselor is for them to make you feel stupid. And Jesus says, I'm the greatest counselor. I'm God, I know you better than yourself. I know what it's like to walk in your shoes. I promise to give you wisdom generously. Your responsibility is to be obedient to it. And then he also gives us a helper in the Holy Spirit. Or in John 16, it tells us that the Holy Spirit guides us in truth. He brings to memory the things that we know to be true. The Holy Spirit leads us and guides us in times that are dark, in times that are difficult, even when we don't understand. That's the beauty of Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, look to him, and the result is he will make your paths straight. Jesus is our counselor. Jesus is our wonderful. Do you see what the third description is? As we open up this gift and we look inside and we're like, Lord, I thank you. The reason why you're the greatest gift for the greatest needs in my life is that you are my mighty God. 
You are my mighty God. In other words, you provide strength for me in the obstacles of life. I don't want you to answer this out loud, but I want you to answer it in your head. How often do you feel like giving up? I'm up here, so I'll answer it. For me, often. Often. It's oftentimes where I feel like giving up. Those moments of doubt, those moments of anxiety, those moments of disappointment. And you feel like giving up. Or you may say this, Lord, I'm just tired of being tired. Tired of being tired. And maybe you feel like that today. And here's what I've found in my own life, that when I get to that point in my life and I feel like giving up or I just say those words, Lord, I'm tired of being tired, it's because I've gotten caught up into thinking that I'm the mighty God. That I have the strength for the things that I face. I'm relying too heavily and thinking too highly of myself. And what I love when we open up this gift in Isaiah 9, 6, and 7 is that God Almighty reminds us, wait a minute, I'm your mighty God. I'm the one that you look to for strength. Can I remind us what we see in this passage of Scripture? Because every word is inspired that it says, his name shall be called when he lists these out. Not your name, not my name, his name. He's the mighty God. He's the wonderful. He's the counselor. And we know there's passages of scriptures riddled all over God's word that remind ourselves that our strength is in him. I love what Charles Spurgeon says and. Charles Spurgeon, those of you, many of you know him, but I don't want to take for granted that every person does. Charles Spurgeon was called the Prince of Preachers. He lived 1856 to 1892. He pastored in London, England at New Park Street Chapel, later named Metropolitan Tabernacle. And here's what he says about the mighty God Jesus. We don't write this way anymore. He says, oh my soul, you cannot say that He has not proved himself in your heart to be a mighty God. Sins many he has forgiven you and relieved your conscience of the keen sense of guilt. Griefs innumerable has he relieved. He's forgiven you and relieved your conscience in the keen sense of guilt. Let me read it again. Griefs innumerable he has relieved. Temptations insurmountable he has overcome. Virtues once impossible he has implanted. Grace in its fullness he has promised and in its measure he has given. My soul bears record that what has been done for me could never have been done by a mere man. And you would rise from your seats, I am sure, if it were needful, and say, yes, he that has loved me, washed me from my sins, made me what I am, must be God. None but God could do what he has done, could bear so patiently, could bless so lavishly, forgive so freely, enrich so infinitely. He is, he must, he will be crowned, we will crown him such, the mighty God. Listen to me this morning. 
If you're feeling like giving up, if you're tired of being tired, stop looking to yourself to be your mighty God and open once again the gift that Jesus Christ has provided for you and remind yourself that you are not mighty, he is mighty. He's greater than anything you will ever experience or be faced with in your life. Open it up again. Look inside of God's word. Open up the gift. Look at it with fresh eyes and stop believing that you are the one who is your savior because there's one savior and his name is Jesus. Like we could stop there. God, the gift's already good enough. But isn't it awesome that it doesn't stop there? It says his name will be wonderful, his name will be counselor, his name will be mighty God. And then when you just think, Lord, that's enough. The generosity of our God through Jesus Christ says, hey, here's what else I'm going to be for you. I'm going to be your everlasting father. See, I'm going to provide relationship for you in the now and forever of life. You know, we believe in the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and but Jesus is not referred to as Father. Here, there's this term, everlasting Father. And the reality is, is that if I place my trust in Jesus Christ, if I accept this gift as my own and realize that I can't earn it by the good that I've done, there's no good that I can do that it can ever expel my sin before a holy God. But if I accept the gift of Jesus Christ as life, death, and resurrection for my sins, then here's what I also receive. I receive a relationship with God and I get to call him Father. And here's what I know that in a crowd this size, there's not every person in here who would have great memories of your earthly father. Maybe you didn't have a dad. Maybe you never got to meet your dad. Maybe you had a father, but he was abusive and he, and he put you down and you're still dealing with things in your life because of, of the way that he fathered you. Maybe others of us are in this room and your dad has been... Fr- out of this life for quite a while, maybe just in a short amount of time, whatever it is. And so when you hear the word father, it doesn't necessarily bring joy to your heart, but it bears grief to your heart. And here's what I want you to understand, that God Almighty is not the reflection of your earthly dad. He's the perfection of your earthly dad. See, I'm very thankful this morning. I know not all of you have this experience, and so I say this humbly, but I'm very thankful for my father. But I will tell you this about my dad. He's not perfect. And I hope that my kids are thankful for me, but I promise you, they will have no problem telling you if you ask them. I'm not perfect. But I have a dad who is. And the only reason that I can call him dad is because of what I have been given through the gift of Jesus Christ. He's my everlasting father. We see that in Romans 8. We hear that in, we see that in John 10. That we have the security that no one can pluck us from our father's hand. I play this game with my kids when we're super bored. Whether we're waiting in the mall for someone who will remain nameless to be done. I didn't say Lori. remain nameless, or we're waiting for something, and I'll play this game when we're super bored, and I'll hold my fist like super tight. 
Sometimes I'll put my hand in, in my fist that way, and I'll have Lily and Lucas try to open my hand. Now, as of yet, they can't get my hand open because I'm stronger than they are. But every time I come to a passage like John 10, we don't have time to read it this morning in verses 27 through 30, I always think of that, that no one is strong enough to pull you out of the grip of your daddy's hand. He is your everlasting father. But we're not done. See, we come to this gift of Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, and we're like, Lord, it couldn't get any better. You're wonderful. You're a counselor. You're a mighty God. You're an everlasting Father. But then we come, and we open up this gift, and we're like, Jesus is also described as our Prince of Peace, which means that he provides that need that I have in my life, that need to experience calm in the storms of life, that that's what our Savior does. He's our Prince of of peace. And did you notice in verse 6, like you thought I skipped over it, but I'm not skipping over it. Notice what it says in verse 6. Before it gets to these amazing names, it says, the government shall be upon his shoulder. And I looked at that verse, and I've read this a million times, and I looked at it, and what stuck out to me was that shoulder is singular and not plural. And I thought to myself, well, maybe it's just translated singular in the English. And so the Old Testament is written in Hebrew. The New Testament is written in Greek. And so I looked it up, and I'm like, well, what, what tense is, is that word shoulder? And it's interesting. It's singular. It's not plural. And the amazing reality of what that is, that the government, the things that are over us, Maybe the darkness or the circumstances or whatever it may be or the loneliness or whatever it is to our Prince of Peace. He says, I'm going to put that on my shoulder. I don't need both shoulders. I only need one. And I'm going to put that upon my shoulder so that you can experience peace. I love what Colossians 1 says. Greg quoted it during our song before the message. That at the end of verse 17, it says, and in him, Jesus, he holds all things together. There's nothing that you are going through in your life that is taking your Savior by surprise. There's nothing that is going on in your life, whether it's a consequence for your sin or it's something that's been outdone outside of, uh, of yourself. There's nothing in your life that happens to you that God doesn't weave together for his glory and for his purposes. And in that reality, in understanding who we have in Jesus Christ, let us understand that he's our prince of peace, which means I can experience calm in the good and the darkness, in the difficult. John 14, 27 says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world do I give it to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Listen to me. My responsibility as a follower of Jesus Christ is to say to the Lord, Lord, you are my king. And whenever I put myself in that place that's only deserving for Jesus Christ, that's when I lack peace. But when I understand, no, 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 the government's upon your shoulder. 
You're the one that rules. You're the one that reigns. Lord, you're the one that's deserving to rule and reign in my life. That regardless of what happens, what that brings me in understanding that the Lord is the king over my life, I experience peace. I don't know about you, but anything that I've looked to to be these characteristics in my life falls so short. These needs that I have for joy, these needs that I have for counsel, these needs that I have for strength, these needs that I have to be accepted and experience relationships, these needs that I have for peace, every one of them have, every one of us have those needs. The question is, is where are you, who are you looking to to meet those needs? Those needs. 